It is Thursday, June 3rd. Never easy for me to say. How you doing? You well today? All good in your world? I've got two terrific guests for you today. So I have, and I look forward to hearing from you on The Richie Allen Show through Twitter. BBG Richie is the Twitter handle. Let's get on with it. Let's do it. It's the BBG, not the BBC. You're listening to The Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford in Greater Manchester. It's The Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, Ron Paul, or Senator Ron Paul, told Fox News last night that emails that were sent by Fauci, that's the man, my mind nearly disappeared, Anthony Fauci, of course, the White House Chief Medical Advisor. His emails have been released because of a Freedom of Information request. Senator Rand Paul, that's the one, reckons that those emails paint a very disturbing picture of Fauci from the very beginning of the so-called pandemic. Emails that prove that he knew that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was carrying out dangerous gain-of-function research. I'm going to be talking about that in the first hour of the programme. Uh, with a, a very interesting man indeed, a doctor who's based in Dallas these days. His name is Richard Fleming. He's a doctor and a scientist. He's uh, involved in a big presentation coming up this weekend. He's going to come on and talk to us about the Fauci emails, Fauci Gate. Yes, that's right. Looking forward to that. And I reached out to Sarah Plumley today. Sarah is a professional teacher. She taught in state schools for a long time. I've been following her on Twitter. I've invited her on to talk about, among other things, what lockdown has done to children's well-being and their education. But we'll also talk about more than that, as I said. So it's going to be a busy one. Yes. Did that ever happen to you? You're in the middle of saying something and, well, everything just empties out of your mind. (laughs) It happened to me a moment ago. Just as well I'm experienced and I just don't care. Yes, two good guests. I think Dr. Richard M. Fleming and Sarah Plumley will uh, will be with me on this very humid Thursday. It isn't as warm as it has been in recent days. Thank heavens for that. But it's still warm enough. It must be said it's warm enough. As I said, Twitter, let me know your thoughts on anything you hear on the programme. Do check out richieallen.co.uk as well. My website... Interesting things on their most days. Yes, indeed. So 50% then of all adults, this was announced this afternoon, by the way. It was announced by a jubilant Boris Johnson. 50% of all adults in the UK have now had two doses of a coronavirus vaccine. Woohoo! Is it cause for celebration? Well, not for me, it isn't. I think they're all mad. But um, for many, it's cause for celebration because they think, well, there'll be no reversing the roadmap now, surely. Surely there's no going back now. More than half the adults have had two jabs and all of that. Well, sadly, uh, there is a reversal. There is a reversal. Portugal has been moved to the amber list of countries. Do you understand that that traffic light system? Portugal is being moved from the 
green travel list, which meant that you could go to Portugal, have a jolly old time of it, come back home and just go about your normal business. Not anymore. It was today added to the amber list of countries, meaning that you can only go there for essential reasons. And that when you come back, well, you've got to isolate for 10 days at home by yourself. Yes. Seven more countries are set to be added to the red lists. Countries including Afghanistan, Bahrain, Egypt, Sri Lanka and Sudan, meaning you should only visit those countries in extreme circumstances. This is mad stuff. This is Kafka-esque stuff, this. It really is. So you have a situation where people believed they could travel to Portugal. Many people have actually travelled to Portugal and the BBC caught up with a guy this afternoon who wouldn't go on camera, but he did speak to a BBC reporter who wrote about it on the website, a guy called Michael from Derry, who says his wife and himself just arrived in Portugal, in Portimao, or Portimao, however you pronounce it, and they were just looking forward to a nice cold beer, unpack, get down to pool and chill out when they found out that when they get home, they will now have to isolate for 10 days. This is mad stuff, so it is. But what are you going to do? Uh, what are you going to do? A TV companies shilling for government COVID advertising money. That's been a feature of the scam-demic. The government has spent, I don't know exactly how much, but it's hundreds of millions of pounds with television, national commercial TV, national commercial radio, paying these um, radio and television stations to broadcast stay-at-home messages, wash your hands, don't kill granny, all of that malarkey. But they're getting desperate now. Good Morning Britain this morning, presented today by Charlotte Hawkins and Richard Maidley, or Alan Partridge, as Steve Coogan calls him. Uh, They said, Good Morning Britain said, they'd done their own poll, they ran their own poll, which showed that 20% of young people would not have a coronavirus vaccine. That's good news. Who better to get on to talk about the young refuseniks than a complete nobody called Ryan Mark Parsons. You might need to look him up online. Uh, He was one of the hundreds of contestants on the BBC reality show The Apprentice over the years. He didn't win it, and yet ITV dragged him out today to have his say on the cool kids who won't have a jab. And he's not happy. Ryan Mark Parsons. Is beyond boring now, listening to under-30s sanctimoniously preaching from their high horse because somehow they think they're immune from the virus and they don't have to do their bit to protect others from this vaccine, uh, from this virus. I've had this conversation with many friends and I'm willing to cut people off if they're not willing to get out there, get the jab and protect others from this virus. I'm done with people like Joanna lecturing the public, lecturing the viewers at home, saying, well, I'm under 30, I'm not really at risk, it's okay, my body, my choice, this philosophical junk, and it needs to be stopped. I tell all people under 30, anyone I meet, get the jab once you're called. As soon as I get called, I'm going to be getting the jab. And we saw that as well at Twickenham Rugby Stadium, hundreds of young people flocking to get the vaccine because they want to protect other people's and lives. Ryan, and, that, and that's their and choice. Ryan, yes. 
Ryan Mark Parsons. Madeley butting in there, Richard Madeley butting in with this question. And you think, you think that people in your age group, this, this 20% who've told us on GMB that they're not going to have the jab or, they, or they're thinking of not having the jab, you think that, that, if that if they carry on with that, they shouldn't be allowed, what, into public places, they shouldn't be allowed into concerts, into clubs, into pubs, into restaurants? Yeah, absolutely. They should be punished for that. They cannot enjoy the civil liberties of other people if they're not going to do their bit for the country. If they're not going to go out and get a simple jab to protect others, then they have no right to go to the pubs and go to the restaurants and the theatres. They deserve to be punished. And I've told my friends this as well. In fact, I have blocked my friends who have said they're not getting a jab. They are dead wood in my eyes. Dead wood in his eyes. Richard Medley, the presenter, and his co-presenter, Charlotte Hawkins, pretty useless there, you know. You could at least say, well, what, what do you mean get the jab to protect others? Surely if others get the jab, then they're protected. What are you talking about? But of course he didn't. Uh, the Joanna he mentioned is Joanna Jarju. I think that's how it's pronounced. A social commentator, apparently. And another Apprentice contestant. She was on the same show, maybe it's him, I don't know. Here's her, Tuppenceworth. Me, when it comes to this vaccine, I think um, people who are vaccine hesitant or, you know, have completely said that they don't want to take the vaccine and not a monolith. I think there's people who are, you know, at the extreme of things and people like me who aren't anti-vax. I've actually come a long way to, since last year in terms of how I view the vaccine. But for me at the moment, I just feel as if when I look at the what's happening globally and I look at all the variants that are happening, instead of imposing rules on under 30s and basically hitting them with a stick right now, we should be making sure that uh, more variants aren't developing in other countries because people who are being vaccinated here anyway, it could turn out that the, the um, virus could mutate to a point where the vaccine that you're taking doesn't work anyway. So I feel like people are so bogged down with judging others, judging their neighbours, their friends, whatever, but... It, for me, it boils down to if somebody doesn't want right. to do something with their body, then it's their choice. Mm, absolutely right. Your body, your choice. It's tyranny. Uh, Gary says, you can cut me off first, Ryan Parsons. You sound, again, Twitter is behaving strangely for me lately. I go to read something and it just disappears. He says, uh, you can cut me off first, Ryan Parsons. You sound like a right Muppet bloke awaits or please, says Gary. David says one of the highlights of summer for me, watching news reports of Brits stranded in airports with faces like smacked arses. I don't know if that'll be a highlight for me. I'd prefer that the those tourists like Michael from Derry would basically stick two fingers up to the government. And upon returning from Portugal, now that Portugal has been moved to Amberlist, if I was Michael from Derry, I would come back home and I would do, I would run naked through my local police station. That's how you deal with these cretins, you know. This guy was told Portugal is a greenless country, book a hotel in Portugal. Uh, many thousands may have already done that. He's now been told today it's an amberlist country. You shouldn't travel there unless you really have to. And when you do come home, you're now going to have to lock yourself in your house for 10 days. So what I would say to people is civil disobedience, non-violent. Come home. If you're on holiday and they tell you that when you've got to come home, you've got to isolate, go straight to your nearest police station or even go to Westminster. Strip off all your clothes and run naked through the streets laughing at these people. That's about the size of it. I'm embracing naturism today. There was some discussion of naturism on the radio this morning. I could hear it in the background. I don't know what was going on. Uh, Philip says total media COVID spend in the UK is over a billion pounds. 
Philip alleges the current, well I know the current contract runs until early next year, is uh, worth £320 million. That's across the media. That's a good point as well. Good evening to Bill. Patricia says Richie Dr. Judy Mikovits in a presentation a few days ago said that Fauci perjured himself during questioning by Rand Paul before Congress concerning the gain of function. It seems Tony isn't exactly the, ma- the man that some Americans think he is. Well, that's a, Patricia is backed up by the New York Post today and by an article in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Fauci has perjured himself. There's no doubt about that. We'll get into that very shortly with uh, Richard M. Fleming, Dr. Richard M. Fleming, indeed. Here's something really interesting for you now. Uh, A BMJ investigation. The BMJ is the British Medical Journal. That's what it used to be called. It's now the BMJ. Right, okay. Reputable source, right, of information, articles on on medicine and and on healthcare. You'll often find some really good, honest stuff in the BMJ on the website. Anyway, an investigation by the BMJ, you won't be surprised at all to learn, into experts on UK vaccine advisory committees reveals that financial links to pharmaceutical firms are often not made public. Put very simple, the public is in the dark about who these scientists advising the government, who they really are, and if they have any links at all to the companies whose products they are promoting. This is important. And Talk Radio's Julia Hartley Brewer sat down with the author of the report, an investigative journalist called Paul Thacker, and he says that scientists are wrong to claim they are not influenced by the money. So I'm going to play quite a bit of this, three or four minutes of it, but I'll break it up. Very interesting. Thacker, the investigator for the BMJ, talking about how those advising governments about vaccines uh, are keeping it pretty secret their financial links to the pharmaceutical firms that manufacture those same vaccines. So what we did was we took a look at a group called the JCVI, which advises the British government on vaccines. And what we did is we looked through, they're required to publish conflict of interest statements to showing financial ties. But when we took a look at those statements, it only requires them to go back 12 months to report to the committee what their financial ties are to other companies. Now, what I did was I just looked through other like publications and stuff and found examples or or on these people's websites where they had disclosed more than what appeared inside the JCVI. Now, it doesn't seem that anyone has broken any rules. What it seems is that the rules for the JCVI are just not that great. Um, Sometimes they don't tell you exactly what these people's ties are. Now, what's interesting is that's just the group that advises the government, right? Then when you go to the group that actually approves these products, or in the case, like nothing's approved, they're authorized, which is called the MHRA. In that case, we don't see any minutes published. We don't, they have not published the conflict of interest of their members going back for several years now. Do we even know who their members are? Um, I don't think so. Um, it might be up. I mean, we just look to see um, their disclosures and they have not published them in several years. Yeah. Um, then again, this is different from America. You managed to help uh, push through uh, legislation in America in recent years to actually um, change it so that people do have to declare. The key thing here is that uh, we're looking at often a declaration, if there is any, it's only going back, say, a year. But 
uh, uh, somebody working in this field could have ties going back, you know, many, many, many years involving tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of pounds. Not just we're not talking about people getting a, a brown paper envelope, you know, under darkness and being bribed to say something. We're not talking about corruption or conspiracy here in that level. But we are. T- why, why does why is Brewer so quick to say that we're not talking about corruption or conspiracy? She doesn't know that. What we do know about the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, we do know it's headed up by June Rain. And we do know that June Rain has has worked on projects that were funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We do know this. She shouldn't be so quick to say there's no conspiracy here. How does she know that? If people working for the JCVI, the Joint Committee on vaccinations and immunisations if some of those people have pretty close links to Pfizer and to AstraZeneca, excuse me how can you say with any certainty that there's nothing sinister about the fact that they're now advising the government on what to do and who to vaccinate this this astonishes me about the media 99.99999% of the so-called alternative media is in fact just mainstream light like talk radio. I said this the other day. I've got to press this point home. She shouldn't say that. That's editorialising. We want to know what Adam Finn and his mates at the JCVI, what relationships they have with the bosses of the big pharmaceutical companies. We need to know that. And it cannot possibly be ruled out that there's not something very sinister going on, namely that these guys like Finn and others, and I'm not saying it's true, I'm saying we have to find out that they've been placed in these situations specifically to advise governments, well, yeah, yeah, you've got the vulnerable vaccinated, now start vaccinating children. So she can't say that it's not conspiracy theory or it isn't it isn't corrupt. She doesn't know that. that level. But we are talking about their research, the, the department they work in, their university, having huge sums of money given to them for that work by huge, big, multinational, multi-billion pound pharmaceutical companies. Um, and then they're offering, you know, a, a supposedly independent advice to the government and to us about what should be done. Yes, you dimwit. It cannot possibly be independent if they've worked with or for Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Glaxo. It couldn't be independent advice. How could it possibly be? So a government minister says to one of these goons on the JCVI, well, who do you think we should vaccinate? Surprise, surprise, the answer comes back, well, everybody. Everybody. But children are totally unaffected by coronavirus, totally unaffected by it. Uh, It doesn't show up in children at all. We now know that children don't transmit it. Um, So why should we give it to children? Well, we we should. Evidence is emerging that um, uh, long COVID, for example. Bullshit. And if they can't prove any of this, you've then got to ask about their relationships with the manufacturers of the jabs. It's not rocket science, you know. Sometimes we, we put journalism on a pedestal. Maybe I do it sometimes. It isn't that difficult to add two and two together and get four, you know. Done. Which some of it may benefit those pharmaceutical companies. So we're not saying these people are corrupt or dodgy or doing anything wrong, but as we have with MPs and ministers in government, they're supposed to declare their register of interest. We need to know where they have received a benefit, whether it's uh, someone's giving them an expensive holiday or done up the number. Yeah, very basic stuff. What was his response? 
Well, the, the issue is actually um, even more complex than that. Um, it's real. This is really about a system. I mean, it's it, you don't need to have a medical degree or any advanced training to understand that if you go out and criticize someone, a company or whatever, they're probably not going to come back and fund your research or fund your yeah. department. Like we kind of understand this probably by the age of our early 20s. We're clever enough as a species to understand these issues. And that's the way a lot of this stuff operates. And now in the States, for instance, um, just to give you a sense, the um, editors of medical journals have concluded, and again, because there's no standards, right, that we should disclose going back three years, right? I mean, you can't like everything that someone has done, but what we want is, you know, a reasonable amount of time. So people have asked for three years. We don't get that out of the British system or out of the American system. We also don't know when there are financial ties, right? Who is deciding and how are they deciding that that's not relevant? So the co-chair of the JCVI, right, of the British system, this individual has a grant from Pfizer. Now, what the JCVI said was, but this does not involve this particular vaccine, but uh, it's still a financial tie. Yeah. The idea so the person not- making a decision about whether or not you should approve a vaccine is is right. in receipt in the last year of money from that exactly the same, same company. Again, No, no, you dimwit. The co-chair of the JCVI isn't part of the decision-making team that decides whether the vaccine is approved or not. That's the MHRA. The JCVI advises the government on rolling out the vaccine. It has nothing to do with the approval of it. She should know that. But still, it's very important. The co-chair has taken money from Pfizer, but yet, but, but yet the JCVI says, well, it's not nothing to do with that particular vaccine, but you're still in bed with Pfizer. So what are the odds of you saying to to Matt Hancock, say, uh, don't give this jab to children, they don't need it. Well, the odds are slim and none, you're in bed with Pfizer. 99 times out of 100, you're going to, well, 99.99 times out of 100, you're going to say to Matt Hancock, yeah, yeah, I think children should have the Pfizer jab. These people, these people, I tells you. Anyway, more of it. Yeah. So we, really, what we're looking at, we just want to know, want to know who is advising the government, who is helping to contribute towards these decisions. We need to know who they are, who has been funding them, not just a, a back a year, and not just based on who who's in charge decides is relevant. We should be able to decide what's relevant. And you know what's really funny about all of this, and ironic, of course, is that programs like this one right here, this one, the one you're listening to. I was speaking to people in April, May and June last year. Excellent researchers and writers on this programme who were able to go over the JCVI and SAGE with a fine tooth comb and link them to every major pharmaceutical company in the world and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And, and we don't have the advertising revenue. We don't have the budget the talk radio has. This is old news, Julia Hartley Brewer. All of them. The 30-odd, I think it's more like 50 now, scientists on stage. All of them, all of these academic institutions take money from these companies through Gavi or CEPI, which are basically subsidiaries of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Jesus love, wake up. It's 23 minutes past 5 o'clock. Interesting that the BMJ is, uh, is looking into it. 
We'll see how that goes in any case. You're with the Richie Allen Radio Show. It's a, a warm, as I said earlier on, but it's a bearable day today in terms of being in the studio anyway. Uh, do tweet me. It's BBG Richie. I do enjoy reading your tweets. Hi to Sean Walsh. How you doing, Sean? Uh, it's not only podcasts, mate, getting out the truth. Uh, it isn't. There are a lot of people, even people still kind of with one foot in commercial media. There are a lot of people doing their best, some of them under the radar, to try and get the, um, say it for, for me, to try and get information out. I've got two people I know at the BBC and they're brilliant at getting information to people. And they've been very helpful to me and to others, and people like Jackie Devoy and Sally Beck and others. So it's not just the so-called indie media. You know, people, a lot more people now in the legacy media are waking up to what's happening and realising that, well, look, it's happening to them as well and to their children. And, uh, yeah, I've said it too many times. OK, hi to Lance. How you doing, Lance? Hi to uh, Charlotte Bins. How you doing uh, there, Charlotte? Hi to Alan in Liverpool. How you doing, Alan? You can follow what other people are telling me by putting BBG Richie, all one word, in search Twitter. Press enter and you'll see what people are tweeting me. Hi to the sixth age. Yeah, I am eventually just going to stop reading tweets. Just just change your handle to just a, I don't know, just a single name. It makes it easier for me. Hi to Nola says, Richie, they are an embarrassment and completely out of order. Wrongful arrest. I tweeted, I retweeted a video earlier on of the Irish guard, Gorda Siakona, the Irish guardie, the Irish police harassing and assaulting a gentleman on a train because he didn't have a mask. He told him that he was exempt from wearing one. That's where it should have ended. No police officer, no transport police officer has any right to ask you what the exemption is. But uh, they bullied and harassed the man. It's an awful looking video. Hi to Davy John. How you doing, Davy John? You well? Nice to uh, uh, hear from you. What's that you're saying to me? Love the show. Uh, and then you mentioned something else, which is really none of your business. But thanks, Davy. Nice to hear from you, buddy. Hi to Shambhala as well. And uh, to David S. David S. says, Richie, I bet these ghouls who are vax happy and want to judge are all for murdering babies inside. Pro-choice, eh, says David. You might be right there, uh, David. Now, I'll be joined a little bit later on in the programme by a professional teacher live from France. Uh, brilliant. I'm really looking forward to speaking to her. Sarah Plumley uh, was a state teacher for many, many years. Uh, and a lot to talk about that as well. Education over indoctrination. We'll talk about quite a few things. We'll have a good old chat. One of the things I want to talk about is the impact that the last 12, 15, 16 months has had on children's mental health, their well-being, their ability to learn and what might be coming. You know, Zoom lessons, uh, um, remote lessons, all this sort of stuff. Uh, the privatisation of education. There's maybe a lot we can get into. 26 minutes past five o'clock. Here's music from James Brown. Why not? The brilliant James Brown only got into James Brown lateish in life, really. My friends have only been saying to me for years, Richie, you don't listen to James Brown, you listen to so much great music, Richie. And you like your soul, you like your Motown. Why not James Brown? And of course, the relationship James Brown had with uh, the Jackson 5 and all of that. I, yeah, I got into it eventually, though. Just one of those things you can't listen to everything. Dr. Richard M. Fleming is in the building. That's nice. It's always good when they're early. While I introduce Richard, while I get him up on, on the line there, I'm going to read you a little bit of the New York Post, an article in the New York Post today. And... Uh, let me just make sure I got all my ducks in a row there. Hi to rude boy Marcus, who's got a broken foot. 
That can't be nice, Marcus. That cannot be nice. You'll heal in time, son. You'll heal in time. You'll heal in time. Just keep it elevated, as it were. All right, then. So let me read this from the New York Post, then. It's just a little bit while we say hello to uh, to Richard. So, newly released emails from White House Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci prove that he knew the Wuhan Institute of Virology was carrying out dangerous gain-of-function research. This is the New York Post today, and this was said by Senator Rand Paul late last night. He spoke to Fox News. He knew the Wuhan Institute of Virology was carrying out dangerous gain-of-function research. Rand Paul, of course, has been all over this for some time. The emails that were released under the Freedom of Information request, which we spoke about earlier on, paint a disturbing picture of Dr. Fauci from the very beginning, worrying that he had been funding this gain-of-function research, said Rand Paul. And he went on to say that, um, that he, Fauci, has a great deal of conflict of interest and, if it turns out this virus came from the Wuhan lab, which it looks like it did, that there's a great deal of culpability and that he was a big supporter of the funding. Again, Rand Paul. Delighted to welcome back somebody uh, very well known, not just in his own country, but here in Europe as well. He's all over this story as well. And this weekend, he's putting uh, together a big live presentation with the assistance of the High Wire, uh, Del Bigtree and all the gang there. He's a a doctor, he's an MD and also a PhD. Let's welcome to the programme Dr Richard M. Fleming. And Richard, it's lovely to meet you and thanks for taking the time to come on the programme, especially as I didn't give you very much notice. Welcome to the (laughs) programme. Uh, good afternoon, I guess, where you are. Uh, and thank you for the invitation, Richie. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Our job, of course, is to promote people like you and things like the things that will happen at the weekend. And I noticed this this morning and I said, the only chance I'll get to promote it is today because this radio show is Monday to Thursday. So it's brilliant to have you on. We'll talk about the presentation shortly. What about Senator Rand Paul then? This is not any big surprise to you, Richard. I don't I, I don't guess. No, I just think it's time that uh, they actually stood up and started uh, demanding uh, that this gentleman uh, uh, actually uh, be accountable for his actions and the actions that have been going on for not, you know, not just since 2019. This all, all this gain of function research is three decades in the making. The the gain of function of of the spike protein of this virus, the self amplifying uh, mRNAs and transmissible vaccines the uh, blockade of physicians treating patients based upon their clinical experience. Uh, it's not like they, they're not aware of the theory that I first presented in 94 because the CDC actually asked me to go to Greece in 2004 and present it. So these people have been aware of it. They've done their very best to block it. They've done their very best, I think, as the emails now clearly show, to do everything to try to cover it up. So, you know, there's no longer an ability to pretend that they didn't know what was going on or they were good guys doing the right thing. It's very clear that they that they were playing around with these viruses, that they knew they did something that they shouldn't have been doing. They, they went around uh, all the... Uh, legal controls that were set in place for gain-of-function research and intentionally allowed this to happen, and and then were bold enough to say that they're, they're not involved when there's research papers published showing that NIH, NIAID, Department of Defense, and other federal agencies help fund these, uh, these uh, projects. There's patents with the federal government money's names on it, and there are grants. Um, 
multiple grants and and I guess this is a good time to point out that some of the information I found other pieces of information other people were kind enough to send my direction and this is really a consensus work of a whole host of individuals who care about what's going on in science who care about what's going on uh, in the world so this is not by any stretch of the imagination just my doing this is the collaborative effort of a lot of people who really do care who are watching science being flushed down the toilet by people that have taken and hijacked science. Well, you, you apply, of course, your acad academic skills in, you, you know, kind of breaking it all down and presenting it in a way that people can understand it, lay people like me. It's very important that. It's very important when, you know, you think about the vast majority of people, they, they don't get the terminology. You break it down brilliantly. People can go to FlemingMethod.com and follow Dr. Richard M. Fleming on Twitter. If you look for Dr. Richard M. Fleming, you'll find him very quickly on Twitter uh, there. Here's the $64 million question then. So if Fauci knew, and, and we know that he knew, that this was going on, and just for our listeners who don't understand gain-of-function research, it's, it's pretty <clears throat> sickening. It's take, taking a virus that could, you know, impact on human beings and trying to make it more deadly, basically, more transmissible. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty sinister thing for any so-called doctor to be trying to do. The $64 million question is then, Richard, were the people doing this? Were they trying to, or were they hoping to at some stage, release a virus that would kill a lot of people? Well, I think all you really have to do is look at the people that funded it. You know, the Department of Defense put in more than half of the money that went to Peter Dazak at EcoHealth, who is the guy who funneled that money then to Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina and Xu Zhang Li at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You just ask yourself, what are these people in business for? When the Department of Defense... Yeah is a military agency. It doesn't work with the Girl Scouts or the Boy Scouts, you know, and they provided um, an advisor uh, to Dazak, who is, was a former commander at Fort Detrick. And for your listeners who may or may not know, Fort Detrick was a bioweapons facility for the U.S. Now, they may have changed the name and, and made it sound better, but, you know, that's what these agencies do. And I buy into the fact that you can say, well, golly, you know, we wanted to know if the virus might mutate a little bit and get ahead of it. That's great. But what they did uh, is they jumped about two to 3,000 years into the future as far as changes that could possibly occur, which means, you know, there's no way in the world that you can justify doing gain of function for the betterment of mankind when you're doing it to clearly produce something that's worse. And if you look at their research, I mean, and you track what they actually say, uh, and now they, I mean, Dazak and Barrick and Zhang, Zhang Li, if you look at their papers, they're very proud of the fact that they've developed things that evade our immune system from bringing it under control, providing the ultimate bioweapon. And clearly, that's not for the betterment of mankind. And clearly, it's in violation of the Biological Weapons Convention Treaty. No, it clearly, it's in violation of the 1947 Nuremberg Code. Clearly, it's in violation of the Declaration of Helsinki on how to, how to treat human beings and research studies. It violates just about everything we put in place to make sure that another Dr. Mengele would not occur and what we have today is a failure of everybody to keep track of these people with the with the presumption that human beings don't have this type of nefarious intent. And and the fact that they're trying to cover it up 
very clearly displays not only are they responsible, but they have a nefarious attempt because, you know, let's be honest, if I made a mistake, I would eventually have to go, you know, that was kind of stupid yeah, on my yeah. part. I'm sorry. But when you covered up, that means you did that intentionally and knowingly, and that makes you criminally accountable. You made a good point there about, the, you know, the standard presumption that these people are acting in everybody's best interest when they patently are not. So if they were looking to make a virus basically unbeatable, it, it, to me, as a layperson, I, I wouldn't use an unbeatable virus overseas if I had an enemy. So if I didn't like the French, for example, and I decided to drop it in France, I, I, that would be foolish because it, it's inevitably going to get here and get back to me. So I, I couldn't do that unless I had the antidote that I could take myself. So that's where depopulation comes in. Now, I say this, and I say this with, with all due respect to who I'm speaking to, but I've had politicians you know, in this country, scientists in this country who never thought they would be saying things like that, who, who would have called it crazy conspiracy theory, but they begin to ask the question, where are some, or are some of these people looking at reducing the population? Is that a bizarre question, Richard, or do you have some sympathy with it? No, I think, well, sympathy in trying to reduce the population? Reduce the population, yeah. You know, I... I no, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't believe that the way to solve any problem is to arbitrarily decide that it's time to get rid of some of the people. Yeah. You know, you never know who, who is going to come through with the next breakthrough or the next uh, great uh, contribution to humanity. We're not, you know, I'm not in a position and, and nobody else on this planet is either to decide who lives and who dies. You know, my oath as a physician, you know, I didn't go in there and go, well, you know, I, I don't like your politics or I don't like the color of your skin or I don't like your belief on this that or the other thing that's not that's not an option that is specifically excluded in the hippocratic oath now i get it that that you know these agencies these federal agencies don't take that same oath no but you know fauci is supposedly an md right i mean I'm, i don't know whether he's a virologist but he's certainly got the top job in it so he's taken that oath and he's violating that oath. And that oath is thousands of years old. You know, it predates this country. It predates all the countries uh, that I'm aware of. And, and it's, you know, I remember taking it and I remember uh, just recognizing the responsibility that that was. Um, you know, there are a lot of doctors who want to treat this virus. And, you know, I think you probably know that back in 1994, I introduced the theory that explains how these viruses produce these inflammatory diseases and, and, and kill people, you know, whether it be heart disease or cerebrovascular or strokes or cancer, a variety of other diseases. And most doctors want to be able to treat this. And I recognize that most of them have not done the type of clinical trials that I think they should have done. But most of them are sitting there going, well, wait a minute, I, I know something about this. I mean, every other, you know, uh, COPD or bronchitic, a, a pulmonary disease patient with an infection that came into the emergency rooms ever since I went to training in medical school from, from the early 80s, <clears throat> back in the Stone Age, you know, we we would immediately put them on IV steroids to get the inflammation and the, and the uh, immunologic response under control. We would immediately begin treating them with antivirals or antibacterials, which really aren't functioning against bacteria. They're interfering with the ability of the virus to replicate itself using the ribosomes within our cells. And so... <clears throat> 
this is the response that every one of these physicians should have had around the world. And what we saw was a tremendous step up by the governments around the world, including the United States, telling doctors, you dare not treat these patients with these drugs because we're telling you not to. And if you do, we're going to hold you accountable. We're going to strip you of your medical license. We're going to threaten your livelihood to your families. We're going to do everything we can to bring you in line. And it's interesting to note that the people who paid for and helped develop SARS-CoV-2 and this spike protein are the same people that said you can't use these treatments, are the same people who developed the vaccines. That's right. It's a very good point you make. Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. I've had Irish doctors on this programme, GPs. I've had English doctors. I had Dr. Tess Laurie on this programme who has worked for the World Health Organisation. She looked into ivermectin. She properly looked into it. Um, her research is... From from what I've been told by other doctors, it's impeccable and, and it should be used. And it's astounding that governments c- could interfere that way in, you know, in the work of general practitioners and say, no, you cannot use this cheap but very effective drug to treat so many people. Well, why, Richard? What's going on? Well, I, I think there's vested interest. I mean, you just have to look at where the money is flowing. You know, and there's nothing, you know, if you've read the U.S. Constitution, I realize most Americans haven't, so I wouldn't expect somebody in the U.K. to have. Um, If you read through the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, that outlines the legislative powers for Congress, provides no legal authority for the U.S. Congress to interfere or practice medicine. Article 2 for the president, the executive branch, provides no powers for the executive branch to tell physicians how to practice medicine. There's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that provides authority for the federal government to control health care. And yet they've stepped up and they've done it. You just simply have to ask the question, why would you step up and interfere? You know, when you see people dying and then you tell doctors you can't do something, I'm sorry, is there a worse outcome than death? I mean, can you do worse than watching people die? Because if you can't, you ought to say, okay, doctors, look, go for it. Show us what you got. Turn the table. And I've talked to lots of doctors who early on, when the control wasn't there limiting them, were using these different drugs. And on Saturday, we're going to release, as part of the presentation, and then make it available on the website, based upon the best published science, including some of my work and a lot of other people's work, recommendations based upon the science for prevention, for treating the virus, SARS-CoV-2, for dealing with the inflammatory response disease of the virus, COVID-19, and for dealing with people that have been vaccinated and are now experiencing symptoms. And I will tell you right now, this is the first time I've included one of these things in a statement pre this presentation. Ivermectin is included in the treatment of individuals who've been vaccinated. Wow. Before I ask you my next question, Richard, where can it's very important. It's the reason I rang you up. Where can people see the presentation at the weekend? What time is it on and where do they need to go? <clears throat> Okay, so on FlemingMethod.com under Event 2021, there's actually a link that is, I think it's thehighwire.com slash watch, but just go to that link and find it. It's going to start at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time 
Uh, we'll have sign-in and all that beforehand, but 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, we're going to start it. And we're hoping to be done by 1 to 1.30 in the afternoon. It's going to be, it is a massive uh, amount of material. There's no way to do this. There's no way to sugarcoat it. There's no way to do it simply or to, or to, or to, bring it into 144 Twitter characters. This is people need to understand what's going on, where this virus came from, what the treatments are that work, what they need to understand viruses versus other infections. They need to understand the data on the on the vaccines themselves. So we're gonna show them exactly what's in the emergency use authorization documents. We're gonna show them things they haven't seen before that have, that have been out there if they haven't raised a question. And then we're going to encourage people to get actively involved to demand answers and accountability. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to provide the, those recommendations based upon the science for people to take to their doctors, to take to their healthcare providers. We're going to encourage them to, um, address the executive branch, the, the legislative branches, the governors, we're going to, and, and the rest of the world can use that as a template if they want to. We're in the process of filing federal lawsuits in the United States. I've assisted with some of the uh, lawsuits that are going on in Europe. I've assisted with a couple already uh, filed in the US to maintain their standing. And we're soon gonna be filing holding these people accountable in the US. So the, this, this multi-pronged approach is to stop the nonsense, shut down the gain of function, allow physicians to practice medicine, allow the rest of the healthcare providers to do what they do, to stop the coercive, abusive use of, of these vaccines. And I will, you know, the, the data, they completely circumvented the scientific process on this. You know, we have methods in science, the scientific method, to determine the safety and efficacy of anything we use. And that was completely circumvented with these vaccines. And when you go back to 2015, one of the documents that's now up on the website that we released yesterday was a document on shedding by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the FDA in August of 2015, they knew that shedding was a phenomenon that happened and they provided a, a guidance to the industry. Now, they, they didn't do that because shedding doesn't occur. They did that because they had a real problem a that they needed to address with the industry, the industry being big pharma. Wow. And there's way, way too much money and that that's already available for people to see on the site under event 2021 because yesterday when those emails of Fauci's dropped what you could see very clearly was a concerted effort to cover up and to dodge and to move it any direction that they could and let me state on the record that even though I'm not a judge or a jury trier of facts because they're the ones who determine something Dr. Anthony Stephen Fauci in my opinion committed perjury when Senator Dr. Rand Paul asked him about gain of function and, and the gain of function that produced SARS-CoV-2. The patents show that the federal government, including Fauci's group, paid for research that Barrick got a patent on that NIH gets privileges from, monies from, that is specifically regarding changing gain of function of the spike protein of coronaviruses. That's the smoking gun. 
I'm glad you brought this up. I want to expand on this in the time we have left. Go, folks, go to FlemingMethod.com, www.FlemingMethod.com. Event 2021, the links are there. It's happening on Saturday morning. Now, that will be 9 o'clock Central Standard Time, as Richard said. That works out at 3 p.m. here in the UK. It's 4 p.m. in Europe, in uh, in Central European time. So it's uh, 3 p.m. here in the UK. Now, on these on these vaccines... I've had a number of very, very well-known virologists and epidemiologists on the programme. And they told me last year, as these vaccines were being rolled out, they said they're very worried about the fact that these um, vaccines, the the mRNA ones basically, effectively encourage the body to produce the same dangerous spike protein as the virus does and that this will lead to antibody-dependent enhancement or pathogenic priming. And it could be, it could be basically, you could have a tsunami of future deaths in people who've had these vaccines. What is your opinion on, on that, Richard? Well, that's, you know, that's absolutely right. The, the, the genetic code for the mRNA or the Pfizer-AstraZeneca double-stranded DNA carries the same genetic sequence as the spike protein. Now, it carries more than that. It has to because they're making a massive amount of this spike protein. And to do that, I, and I told people back in March of this year that there was no way in the world that they could get the type of immune response they were, they were getting unless they also included the genetic sequences from open reading frame 1A and 1B which has the replicase in it. And that is what a self-amplifying mRNA is so that the replicase gets in there and it amplifies even more spike protein. And that's why we're seeing the shedding. And, And the animal model in the papers that we'll share in the presentation on Saturday show that the animal model for the investigation of SARS CoV 2 spike protein is human is human. The other animal models for the other viruses that they're testing out are all, you know, dogs, pigs, rats, mice, you know, cows, human. We're the experiment. SARS-CoV-2. It's right in the documents. And so what's happening is they're making a massive amount of this spike protein. We know from the Moderna data from lipid nanoparticles when they did the influenza vaccine back in 2017, that these lipid nanoparticles and these antigens, these in this case, spike protein, were found all over the animal models that they used in the brain and the heart and the bone marrow and the spleen, not just at the muscle injection site. And this spike protein is exquisitely targeted not only to cause inflammation and blood clotting or inflammatory thrombotic response throughout the body, but Kevin W. McCarran in Japan who is probably the premier scientist for neurobiology and animal models, talked about this a year ago where he was warning that these spike proteins would cross the blood-brain barrier and cause neurologic disease. We know that near the receptor binding domain of this spike protein, there is a prion-like domain that causes disease. And the animal studies that were done in humanized mice and rhesus macaques show brain damage from prion diseases, either spongiform encephalopathy in the mice, which is typically referred to as mad cow disease, or Lewy bodies, which produce Alzheimer's uh, disease and a number of other neurologic diseases found in the rhesus macaque models. Dr. McCarran emphasized this a year ago and stayed with it much to his credit and much to the credit of the people who follow him because he continued to pound this out there 
and was one of the people that that brought this information to light. So uh, recognition to Dr. McCarran for doing that. Luc Montagnier has done a tremendous amount of work in Paris. A virologist who got the Nobel for this discovery of HIV did the mathematical modeling to show that not only was he confirming when Zhang Li said that she introduced uh, HIV glycoprotein 120 into these spike proteins, but he demonstrated quite eloquently that there were something like 1,700 nucleotide bases that are all HIV. Now, if there's anybody who should know whether it's HIV insertion into the spike protein, it's, it's the man who got the Nobel Prize for discovering it, for crying out loud. Yeah. You start looking at this and you realize how dangerous the spike protein is and the vaccines, if you want to call them that, I've called them drug vaccines, but now when you look at that 2015 shedding paper that the, the HHS and FDA put out, they called it gene therapy <clears throat> so i guess we have to go with their terms they, did they want call to call it, gene, it therapy. gene therapy they did let me just come back on two things this program does live phone-ins from time to time we get inundated with calls from people lovely irish um irish lady called kelly well she lives in london very bright lady she was observing a phenomenon on social media where women um, were saying that they felt that something was going wrong with their menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And all of them seemed to have one thing in common. They were living with somebody a little bit older who had had one of the vaccines. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the shedding is a real phenomenon. I mean, it would be nice to do a study to measure what's actually coming out. But clearly, HHS and FDA my good friends, the ones that have beaten me up in the past, are, 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 are you know, and, and helped to fund this spike protein, you know, put out this document in August of 2015. They know shedding is going on. Here's it's, the question then. Clear. Here's the question, Richard. And I, I know, look, I know the sort of person you are just from spending 25 minutes with you. You're, you're a gentleman who you, you like to, to deal in the things that you can prove. And I like that. But I'm going to put this to you. <clears throat> You know this, um, Dr. Sucharit Bakhti knows it, Dolores Cahill knows it, Dr. Mercola knows it. You, you people know that what, what these so-called vaccines will do, these gene therapy treatments will do. I'm willing to bet every penny I have that the manufacturers of these medicines know the exact same uh, things you know. Then we're into James Bond villain territory, Richard. We really are. This is, this is beyond sinister. They must know that these medicines will cause great, great harm in the community. And yet they're being injected into people's arms right around the corner from where this studio is. That's evil, unimaginable evil. Is it all about the money or is it something else? Well, the the people that I've talked to that, that you know, like Dr. Yan, who was over in Taiwan and escaped from there and is now in the United States in hiding, um, she and I have been on a couple interviews together and she explained it very, very simply that this virus, you, uh, and I would tell people to think of this, I don't want to destroy a product, so let me just put it this way. You should think of this spike protein in this virus as something that was funded and developed in the United States and made in China. Right. And I think that what happened is that the Americans thought they were playing the Chinese and the Chinese thought they were playing the Americans. And look at who got caught in the crossfire, the rest of the planet. And the goal of a, the real intelligent goal of a bioweapon isn't to kill people. 
You know, I, I always tell people I'm old enough that I'm of the Vietnam era. And I remember during those days that the size caliber of the bullets were reduced down to a 22 caliber bullet with the with a specific intent not to kill the enemy, but to maim the enemy. Because if you kill them, you lose one person on the battlefield. If you maim them and they've got friends, their friends will run to their aid and carry them off. And now you've got two or three people off the battlefield. So bio-warfare and real warfare isn't necessarily just about killing your enemy. It's about demoralizing and maiming your enemy. This bio-weapon has done exactly that. Look at people. It has shut down societies. It has destroyed economies. It has turned family against family, friends against friends, uh, people in cities against people in cities. It has, it has put great tension between countries of the world. It has done exactly what a bioweapon has done. And I suspect that these people thought that they were ahead of the curve. But here's my on-the-edge belief. If you look at the variants that are occurring with these viruses, viruses don't get more aggressive over time because if a virus gets too aggressive and kills the host, then they die because they have no way to escape to survive. So viruses get aggressive enough to get a niche and then they stay there. They don't get more aggressive. These viruses are getting more aggressive. And I think, although I cannot prove it, but I'd like to, that the vaccines are not SARS-CoV-2. I think the vaccines are being rolled out as SARS-CoV-3 and SARS-CoV-4 or new variants. Right. Yeah. It, it'll never end unless people no, put a stop and, 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 and just, just to let you know, I'll, let me ask you a question. Do you know when SARS-CoV-2 was first recognized and developed? I don't. No, you're going to educate me. I may have read it somewhere. 2006. Was it 2006? 2006, the Chinese made a viral virus that was a combination of HIV-1, hepatitis C virus, SARS-CoV-1, and SARS-CoV-2. And they used PCR to prove it, and they did it the way PCR is supposed to be used. They stopped it at 20 cycles, which is exactly what Kerry Mullis said to do in his patent, was to not use more than 20 to 25 cycles maximally, or you would artificially make yourself think you had something you didn't have. And they're still giving that test in this country and every other country today and wrongly identifying people as having uh, the virus. Richard, we're just out of time. Again, thanks for coming on short notice. Uh, I, 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 uh, I'm going to give you the last couple of minutes to plug Saturday again, where people can go and see it and the times. Over to you then, Richard. Oh, thank you again, Richie, for the invitation. Um, this Saturday, the 5th of uh, June, beginning at uh, 9 a.m. Central Standard Time here in the U.S., we're going to have an event in Dallas, Texas at 8505 Douglas Avenue. And if you're able to make it, we'd, we'd love to have you be there. I always believe people get more out of it in person. If not, it's going to be live stream, thanks to Del Bigtree, who is... Um, you can go to FlemingMethod.com and go to Event 2021 and drop down the tab. It'll give you the link to, to the high wire. 
I think it's the highwire.com slash watch. And they're going to record the whole thing. They're going to live stream the whole thing. We're going to talk about where this virus came from. We're going to talk about treatments of this virus. We're going to talk about the vaccines. And we're going to talk about things that you can take to your doctor um, to allow you to be treated for this based upon the science. And I will let you know that we already have two sites, one in the United States, one in Europe that have already agreed to using these protocols and using the, the patented method FMTVDM that allows you to measure what's going on at the tissue level so that you know what effect the drugs are having and you can measure that in three days' time versus waiting to see if somebody lives or dies. It would be nice to get into that with you in the not-so-distant future, that as a subject itself. FlemingMethod.com, you've been listening to Dr. Richard M. Fleming live from Dallas this morning. Richard, thanks for your time and good luck over the weekend. All the best for now. Thank you, Richie. Thank you, Dr. Richard Fleming there, uh, live, as I said, in Dallas. Got in touch with him this morning because I saw that event was going ahead and a lot of, well, a lot of very reputable people will be speaking at it. It might be of use to you, you know, you might have a relative who might be kind of on the fence about the vaccine, maybe, I don't know, and you might get him to watch some of it because, again, it isn't just independent content creators telling you stuff. It isn't. It's actual you know, doctors and scientists, so check it out. Two minutes past six, or two and a half minutes past six it is then. Music from Coldplay. We're going to take a different turn now in a few minutes' time. We're off to France, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. I really am. We'll be joined by a professional teacher called Sarah Plumley. Don't miss her. I'll read your tweets out when I come back as well. Where I want Coldplay and clocks, yeah. I swear to God and to his son, Jesus, that I've not had a drink. It feels like I have, though. It feels to me like I have, but I haven't. It must be the humidity today. It's kind of gotten to me. I'm mispronouncing words. There's a million jokes out there. I I can hear you saying, well, what's new, Baldy? What's new? And forgetting things, things I meant to do. Load the player with another tune. Do this. It's one of those. Maybe, maybe it's the end of the week, maybe. I think the week after a bank holiday. That week is always difficult, isn't it? Because you have your bank holiday Monday. You enjoy yourself, don't you? And then you get back into it on Tuesday, but you're kind of chasing your tail all week long. Uh, Jane says, Richie, great... Great interview and so much information in a short time. Thanks, Jane. I appreciate that. Uh, Hi to Paul, who says, Richie, your guest Richard is a top bloke. Another rational voice you will not hear anywhere else. Is anyone else convinced that a large proportion of society is going along with everything because they have a morbid desire to be victims? It's an interesting question, Paul. I don't know. Faisal says, I still believe that an engineered virus was released around 2018-2019 and that it failed to have the expected impact and was dying out in 2020. They called the pandemic anyway, hoping that the media hype would be enough. And here we are. That's Faisal there. Thanks for that, Faisal. I'll neither agree nor disagree with anything because it all sounds pretty rational to me. And when it comes down to it, I don't know an awful lot, really. I really don't. Very interesting comments. Thanks for them. I'm um, going to get my next guest on now. And she's also, you know, come on at first time of asking. I invited her on today because I was on her. I, I, came, I came about her 
one of our tweets by accident. We follow each other on Twitter and that's the way it works. People tweet and you see their tweets, that's the way it works. And I found out through Twitter that she's a teacher, a private professional teacher, but had worked as a state teacher for some time for many years, right? And she has some very interesting things to say about the so-called pandemic and about mask wearing and about the measures and all of that. But looking a little bit more into her, she also has some very, very interesting things to say about education. And that interests me as well. Uh, Education, not indoctrination. Now, she's not answering me at the moment, so I'm going to have to maybe... Take another tune while I figure out what's going on. She is there and she said hello to me. So uh, we'll try again there. Let's try again, dag nabbit. Let's try again, can't cern it. And uh, hopefully it will clear itself out and we'll get her on. Failing that, I'll do it the old-fashioned way. We'll use the old Alexander Graham Bell. No, it's not going to work. I know a way around it, though. Here's a, a tune for you. I know, absolutely useless. I didn't, I didn't load the player with the tune. But I'm going to do it now and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get her on. Yes, but um, education, not indoctrination. I'm a teacher, not a preacher is, uh, is her mantra. And I like that. And I want to talk about it. And seeing as I have my own radio show, well, that's what we'll do. This is The Saw Doctors from Galway and N17 on your Richie Allen Show Thursday's programme. Now, as good as the song is, let's get rid of it. It's Saw Doctors and N17. So I mentioned about Sarah, then professional GCSE and A-level mathematics teacher from the UK. She's in France these days. Oh, I'm not giving too much away. Love uh, the Odyssey site for Sarah, talking about education, not indoctrination. Teaching, not preaching. And she, she, she says, learn how to teach your children at home confidently, consistently, and with a fully qualified professional to guide you. Homeschooling, which has come up once or twice over the years as well. Let's just welcome to the programme, uh, Sarah Plumley. Hey, Sarah, welcome to the show. How are you? Cheers, Richie. Good to hear you. How are you doing? Good to hear you. I was wondering what was going on there. I thought there were gremlins in the works that was going to put paid to our plans. But I'm delighted you're on. It's a lovely change of pace too. It's also a very, very serious subject, uh, Sarah. Uh, So it is. Can I ask, um, whereabouts in France are you? Sure, yeah. We're sort of near Limoges. That's the sort of main airport that would service this area. It's kind of of southwest central, really. It's classed as the... um, South uh, Southwest, but it's not really We're the sort of northeast tip of the southwest. Right. Uh, so, it's beautiful, though. It's, uh, you know, ordinarily it's uh, pretty, pretty hot and sunny in the summer. Yeah, so. fantastic. And I, I'll ask all the personal questions in the world. You just tell me to bugger off. So did, <laughs> did, did, did a relationship take you to France? Um, no, I was already in one. We, we we decided to make an escape because we could see things were not going too well in uh, in old Blighty. In old Blighty. And um, yeah, we sort of saw some of these things coming and thought, well, we'd rather be somewhere more rural, away from big towns and cities. Um, and yeah, we kind of thought, well, what can we do about it? Um, land and a big house in the country is pretty expensive in the UK, but in France, there are lots of options. So yeah, we just... Uh, Went on a recce and uh, decided, actually, yeah, let's do it. Let's let's get out of here and uh, 
it's, so far it's proved to be a, a pretty decent decision. Fantastic. We, we, we obviously could spend a lot of time talking about that because it's hugely interesting. My other half, obviously, uh, people who listen know she is French and she watches those programmes. What are they called? The Chateau, is it? The Chateau, Channel 4 do them. All these programmes, <laughs> she loves it. I don't know where she thinks I'm going to get the money to buy a Chateau. It's never going to happen. But uh, but may, maybe a barn converted maybe in the future. Now tell Absolutely. me, tell me what led up to that decision then because you were working in state education, you're teaching your GCSE and A-level mathematics, it's, you know, good job, you're obviously a clever uh, person, but you obviously saw something happening in education you didn't like, Sarah. What, what was that? Oh, for sure. Where do you start? Goodness me. I guess the teacher training um, is, is, a, is a big one. And um, I kind of realised there's something not quite right about it while I was doing it. The reason being, I came to teaching later than, than most people. I don't agree with this idea of being in school being in sixth form or college, going to university and then going back to school as a teacher because you don't know anything. You might be brilliant at your subject. You might know all there is to know about mathematics up to the age of uh, 18, whatever, but you don't know anything about life. So how can you be a good role model for children? How can you really teach children anything if you don't know anything? You have no life experience. You've had no proper jobs. Yeah, I come from a an acting background. Um, I started off as amateur dramatics, went to drama school. Of course, when you're a, an out-of-work actress, you, you become a waitress, you work in bars, you work in factories. I delivered the post. I was a postie for a, quite a while. Wow. You do lots of different stuff. And I, I, was, I was told when I was actually at school that I was going to be a teacher, and I was a bit upset about that. <laughs> I didn't really I, – I tried to do anything right. I could to avoid it. But uh, I kind of know what they meant. Um, I'm reasonable at communicating things to young people, and I, it was inevitable. But when I went on the training – just seemed very odd to me that there was so much focus on the subject. They go on about this subject pedagogy, uh, which is a, a massive word, which just means um, the, how we teach the subject. And they're absolutely obsessed with it. And I was thinking, but, but what about the children? When do we learn about, you know, child psychology, for example? That might be a useful thing if you're going into a classroom with 30, 16 year olds. Um, when are we going to learn about classroom management? Because if you don't, if you can't manage the children in your classroom, if you cannot manage their behaviour, then how are you going to teach them any maths or, or whatever your subject is? And it, for me, it just, I, I chose a university that wasn't a particularly famous one because it had an excellent reputation for teacher training. But I just didn't, none of the stuff that I thought was the most important thing for a teacher was actually taught there. If you compare it to military training, take, for example, Sandhurst, you have teach, you have, um, Soldiers will go into Sandhurst to be, to, to be trained as officers, but they're trained as officers first and everyone is trained together. Then they specialise later. And that's that's how teacher training ought to be. You've got to learn to be a, a good role model. You've got to learn um, how to look after children, how to teach children uh, in, in a generic sense as, as, as a human being, as a man and as a woman, bef before you start teaching the sort of intricacies of your subject. Because if, if you don't have the respect of the class, you're never going to get to teach anything anyway. You know? right. this is this is amazing to me as somebody who vividly remembers his primary school experience and my secondary school experience and both of those experiences were good and I got the sort of teaching that you provide that that you believe should be provided uh, there was far more of that it changed not just in the UK with Blair, and I'm, I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, but it always seems to me that it was Blair's government, and I'm certainly no Conservative Party supporter, but it was around about that time in the mid-90s. The European Union must have had a lot to do with this because it was going on in Ireland as well, that the emphasis was coming off, you know, a, a good open relationship between teachers and students, and it was becoming more regimented. Am I right to say that, 90s, around about that time? 
Yeah, the timing, certainly. Wow, yeah. wow. Yeah, and targeting. Did you have that, uh, Sarah, by the way, did you have to deal with that targets and all that nonsense? We did it. They were just bringing it in. My year was a guinea pig year. Uh, we were the first kids to do uh, SATs in, in a certain year. We got extra testing. They did bring in all of this, uh, like, cats testing. Right. The sort of IQ type tests. We, we, we were, a lot of things were trialled upon us. We also were the first year to do uh, modular A-levels and, and all of the joys that that brought. So, yeah, I... It, for me, it, it's not so much the, the academia, although that is going wrong as well, for sure. But like you said, it's the relationships between students and teachers and students, teachers and parents. You know, we, not only do we have a, a generation of, 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 you know, snowflake children, which are all, almost unteachable. Now their parents are snowflakes, too. And how much longer before we have grandparents, parents and students? And what I mean by snowflakes is people who, you know, can't stand being told off because they were late to class. Right. How, how are they going to learn to be on time for their job? What, what do you mean you, you can't reprimand a student because they were late? You know, and all, all this stuff is coming from the senior leader teams. Oh, we can't do this. And, you, and as a teacher, oh, no, no. It's, it's almost like you're prevented from, from, from disciplining students in the classroom. You There's, are there is shocking absolute... me, Sarah. You're shocking me. So, <laughs> no, no, you are. I can't. Listen, I was late probably once in my entire life. I, I'm, I'm, I'm an incredibly punctual person. I'm fastidious. I'm a pain in the arse, really. I don't like um, lateness. One time, and I got a proper uh, kick in, not, met, not, 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 not literally of course for it and I accepted it you're telling me that today teachers are walking on eggshells no way I I have parents shouting at me because I um, politely pointed out that it's unacceptable to to be late to a class yeah how how am I wrong about that and why are you defending your kid you know surely you want them to learn I'm helping teach these lessons so that they help them later in life. That is the job of a teacher. And that's not it's you not being, that's not you being the, what, what was the character's name? The trunch, the trunch bull. That's <laughs> not you being the trunch bull. It's not, that's not you throwing about your authority. It's a life lesson. I totally accept that. You know, you're not doing it because you want to be, you know, authoritative. You're saying, listen, you got to be on time. There's a reason for it. You are going to be working. You are going to go to uni, you know, when, when there will be consequences for you not turning up on time. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. You're, they missed opportunities. If, if you're late, if you're sort of person who's always late, you're not going to get offered, you know, the good gigs, are you? That's it, it. That's how the world works. And this is the stuff that you know we really, really have to teach our children, even more so than the academics. It, it's 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 the life lessons and the life skills. But there's a total breakdown. If if you went and witnessed uh, the behaviour, particularly in corridors at state schools, I can't. I haven't spent much time in grammar or private, though I do privately tutor private school, grammar school, and state school students. So I have got the whole range. So for academics. I know. But in terms of behaviour, if you were to observe uh, secretly the the behaviour in corridors during changeover between lessons and the behaviour in a sort of break time, lunch times in the canteen, in in the corridors, you would be absolutely shocked. It is nothing like it was even 10 years ago. It is disgraceful. And you have teachers not managing it. I go back to my first year of teaching and there was an enormous boy um, straddling a, a much smaller boy and punching him in the head. Now, I'm, I'm not being a Miss Honey here. I'm not talking about play taps. You know, I've, I've refereed men's Sunday league football. I know, I know punching, Have you? right? Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I did right. seven years. I did seven years of that in Stockport. So I, I know what I'm talking about. I've seen a few fights. Yeah. <laughs> I've broken, yeah. broken a few fights up. And this poor kid, this, this, this smaller kid was getting beaten in the head. Now, I was the only teacher around. I'm not a big girl. I'm, I'm five foot, right? So I grabbed the lad's rucksack and pull him up. And he's almost a whole foot taller than me by the time I finished pulling him. He's towering over me and the little kid runs off. So that was that. I thought I told him off and I thought nothing of it. I went to, went to report it to a senior leader 
um, sort of like a deputy head character. Anyway, I then get investigated for, for laying a hand for on a student. For putting your hand on the, on the boy, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> Not only did I never touch the student, but also, hang on a minute here, if you're the parent of the kid, the small kid, who's getting his head staved in by the other lad's fist, wouldn't you want me using reasonable force to, to remove the child who's punching him? I, I was I was literally investigated in some, like my first I don't know probably the first few weeks um, of of one of my, my one of my state school jobs, um, for stopping someone punching a, another kid in the head. And there's other you know members of staff. You can see why they stop dealing with behaviour because it's, it, the attention is then turned on them rather than on the the, the misbehaviour uh, of the students. So it's 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 kind of wild. It, and and you sort of think oh well this must only be happening quite a bad school or quite a a school in a, in, a, in a tough area. Okay, some of the schools I worked at were in tough areas, but other schools I worked at were higher performing, outstanding state schools in Cheshire. And the behaviour in the corridors in some instances was actually worse at that school than some of the schools I've worked in that have been in special measures. No way. No way. Can well, I, can the I, can way I... they hide it is, sorry, the way they hide it is on parents' evening, open, obviously parents' evening, there's hardly any kids in the school. On open evening, they just select the very best behaved students. And then when Ofsted come in, you find all kinds of extra teachers, um, no, senior right? leaders, police in the corridor just for those, you know, those inspections. Are we, this is, um, this is beyond fascinating to me, this, and it's lit up Twitter. Uh, there's a load of tweets on this coming in. Gary says, I can concur with everything Sarah is saying. Having worked in the environment for many years, teachers with their own brain will never get anywhere. Caroline tweets, she is so right. I have worked in school. I've had an email from somebody who works as an assistant teacher who absolutely concurs. John Pierce says, bang on. This is absolutely shocking to hear this. Tim says, great stuff. The truth about current practice and schools is out. I'm so glad I got out of the profession myself in the 1990s or in 1990. Well, I can't believe this. Well, I can believe it because I know you're not telling me lies. Um, it's really, um, our, our listeners are like, wow. And they seem to know this is going on. Last week or the week before, I can't remember, maybe last week, I didn't cover it on the programme. I don't know why, but there, there were reports, teachers were saying that sexual assaults in corridors in schools in this country against girls are basically... It's an, epi- an epidemic. Does, does that surprise you to hear that? It, it doesn't. It does not surprise me. And it should. It should shock me. It should shock everybody. But it doesn't surprise me. I haven't ever witnessed that. I've only witnessed physical assault, uh, verbal abuse. But it, that does not surprise me at all. And is this because one of the things I've gotten into over the years, or at least tried to, with guests, obviously, because I know nothing about anything, but I get guests on to talk about it, uh, is the effect that, is the effect that, you know, the use of computers constantly, the use of phones, the effect that's having on the psyche of children and on their behaviour. Is it simplistic to talk about that? Or would you yourself, Sarah, have noticed the change in behaviour coinciding with the constant use of these devices? Completely agree with you. It was on the slide beforehand. A lot of this stuff has been going on. Um, I can remember when I was at school, there was some slight discipline issues. Then when I went back about, I'd say, 10 years later to work as a TA and and I was doing a bit of part time stuff while I was acting, I was trying to figure out what subject I was going to teach. I interviewed quite a lot of teachers and they were saying to me that the behaviours that they were being forced to manage within their classroom, i.e. keep those kids in the classroom, were unbelievable compared to even five years ago and that has only got worse since I then subsequently trained taught myself they they were saying that that basically the senior leadership are making teachers keep kids in classrooms who are basically unsafe their behavior is unsafe their behavior is so bad 
that it's it's disrupting not just we're not talking about you know a bit of low level disruption here we're talking you know all out hostility students not learning anything threatening environments it's yeah it's it's just unrecognizable from from how it used to be and, and with regard to the um, handheld devices you're completely correct i'm not a, um, a, an expert on this but I, i'm desperate to learn more there is something about this this switch to typing everything or, or using the thumbs to text and staring at screens that is desperately unhealthy psychologically there's there's something very apparent about students who still write things by hand and are encouraged to write essays at least in the first draft by hand there's definitely it's definitely a superior thing and i actually think it's part of a a darker agenda that we're moving students away from um paper and pen skills i've actually gone back to learning and teaching cursive proper handwriting Have you because we don't want yeah i don't want those skills to be lost because what would happen if one day you got lo- you got your internet got turned off uh what how would you get a, a message to somebody else and even if you could write it would they be able to read your handwriting i, I they sure as hell i am so glad i'm so glad i invited you on yeah Sarah, I'm glad I invited you on. Why didn't I think of that? Why did when we talk about cashless society, why didn't any of us think, as you've obviously thought, you're obviously very bright, why didn't any of us think these devices are going to ultimately phase out skills like writing? Um a very important skill like writing is you've you you I never thought of that. You're I bang think on. one of the last people to be hanged. I can't. I think this is probably Russia. I think the last two people to be hanged in Russia, which was not actually that long ago, if you go check it out, um, were people who were um, making or, and or selling pencils. Is <laughs> because that obviously, right under under a, um, a vicious tyrannical dictatorship, you don't mm. want pe- uh, people communicating with each other out out of the eyes and ears of the of, of the powers that shouldn't be. So, you know, my concern was, oh my goodness, if I wrote a message, a really important message, I needed to get it to somebody in the next village, the poor devil probably wouldn't be able to read it, and it's nothing to do with their reading ability. It's just my writing is filthy because I wasn't taught cursive at school, and that yeah. was you know back in the in the nineties, and it wasn't even being taught in some schools then. So yeah, it's one of the things I've I've started to look into. Again, I, I want to find out more about the psychology of all of this typing and all this screen time. There's something very kind of selfish about screen time. And I don't know whether there's some sort of territorial thing either, because if you try and distract a, a student while they're on, on, on a computer, they're often quite hostile because they're obviously busy involved in something else and don't want to be interrupted. Right. Just the same with adults. So there's something going on there. But again, I'm not a professional psychologist. I'm, I'm a sort of amateur sort of learner, a reader about psychology. That is definitely something you're onto something there, Richie. You've had some journey. No, you are. You're onto something. You, you're, you've had some journey. We're speaking with Sarah Plumley. Sarah is a teacher. She's a professional teacher now, uh, working privately, has worked in state schools. If you want to follow, I, I'm not if you want to do follow Sarah on Twitter, it's at Sarah Plumley UK at Sarah Plumley UK. An amazing uh, journey you've had from the acting uh, and and you know how that grounded you. Having to obviously, it's a very difficult profession, even for even successful people. You know, you, people who've been in big films and stuff, they go long periods of time between jobs. It's difficult. You did everything. You went out to your waitress. You learned a lot about life. You learned. Um, I suppose you find yourself, don't you, when you do all that sort of stuff, and then you were able to take those skills into teaching. But sadly, teaching was moving away from those skills, and uh, teachers were, were were not encouraged to, 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 you know, to, I suppose, to have a life before going into teaching. Incredible stuff, this, folks. Um, I, I, I want to just kind of shift it just a little bit forward, but before we talk about the, the, the COVID and what, what what that's doing, you mentioned earlier on about not being able to tell a child off for being late. 
this is new now, isn't it? Uh, we we see, and it almost sounds like we're bashing young people. We're not doing that. I'm certainly not doing that. I love, I don't get to, to meet too many children. There are lots of them in our neighbourhood and I speak to them when I can. I, I work too often, but it's great to see them kids running around um, outdoors, kicking footballs, chasing one another, riding bikes. Great. I, I, I love, we're not bashing children at all, but something is happening to children. And you talked about, well, we, we, we were told, you know, to, to go easy on giving out to them for being late and stuff like that. We're kind of creating a new generation where, where, where the child growing up into adolescence and into young adulthood almost gets to create a, a fantasy kind of vision of themselves and of the world that might be totally at odds with reality. But we've got to just accept that. If that's the way they want to feel and the way they want to think, we're, we're being encouraged, everybody else, to kind of back away from that. That's not good, Sarah. That's not good at all. So you, you referenced uh, Matilda back there before with Miss Trunchbull. We'll, we'll check out the My Mummy Says I'm a Miracle. Yeah. Yeah, from from the, the hit musical uh, with Tim, uh, Tim Minchin's lyrics, I believe. My Mummy Says I'm a Miracle. You know, yep, all these miracles, hey? All of you are miracles. So, you know, how, how, how can all these miracles be, be miracles? Yeah. Doesn't it make it unmiraculous? Yeah, it's, it certainly is. It's, it's fantasy land. It's la-la land. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson, I know he, he sort of t- targets an older audience but yeah. th- than the, the kids I teach, but he talks uh, very clearly about not going off the beaten track, certainly not too soon. If you're going to leave the beaten track, you better damn well be talented. And I don't just mean a little bit talented, a lot talented. We, you know, we're stood here on the shoulders of giants. Somebody like me from a council house background, you know, shouldn't really have made it into teaching. Um, it, I, I'm here because, you know, I got to go to, to school. I got to learn to read, to write. I had some very, very good teachers, very strict, very old fashioned, uh, obsessed about grammar and spelling and all of those things. But thank goodness, thank goodness for them. Because when I, be, um, when I arrived in the classroom to hopefully try to do the same thing for my students, I'm being told to give out um, multiplication squares so the kids don't have to learn their tables no because so oh, it's a bit too much pressure what what I wasn't having any of that I, I, I didn't obey that at all um, but you can see they, they're kind of sort of you know treating them like tiny infants and that they're sort of prolonging infancy perhaps it's so they never really learn anything and so that they never really grow up Right. Yeah, that's very important. Uh, David says on Twitter, none of the billionaire tech giants expose their children to tech until they have been classically educated first. So that's a guess, David. We don't have any proof of that, but I understand why you might you might think that. Alan says, my handwriting is like an epileptic spider going backwards through an ink pot. Very good. Uh, I like that as well. Elizabeth is in Madrid and she's had some experience of this as well. Uh, it's ama- it, they're coming out of woodwork here to say yes uh, we recognise this so you'll have an infantilised generation then won't you which will be meat and drink for the state won't it I actually think that we already have one I, I think we're working on the second one already um, it's the parents that are alarming me now um, there is a lot of parents are the sort of parents my age I suppose in their mid to late 30s perhaps early 40s and I, it, you know it's them that's com- complaining uh, that I've reprimanded a student for being late <laughs> It's like, hang on a minute, <laughs> that's my job. You know, it's, it's actually not just the students, it's actually the parents as well. And obviously, this is not all students. Obviously, this is not all parents. There are clearly some people doing this right. And it's, it's, it, you can see it. You, you can, this is the first year where um, homeschool students, in my opinion, have overtaken students who go to school. Um, the, the homeschool students that I have are the only ones who have kept it together this year. Is that the right? Other, Absolutely. And I've never had weak students. I actually vet my students and parents as a private tutor very carefully because I want to 
give the most value and I can only give the most value if you're going to let me teach your child so you've turned them you've turned people down then Sarah you said no to people right of course yeah frequently I'm not going to I will never turn anyone down based on ability so I don't care how rubbish you are at maths it's not a problem I can fix that what I can't fix is uh, an attitude If if you come to me with a terrible attitude I can't help you yeah unless your parent is very much on board then we might be able to do a tag team and help you uh, but I, I have to have at least either the parent or the student and preferably both of them with the right attitude towards learning and towards, you know, important things like morals, yeah. courage, <laughs> respect, discipline. It's not hard. And I don't buy into this. Oh, you have to earn respect. Nonsense. Give everyone your respect. Give everybody your absolute respect. Of course, they can lose it and they can lose it very quickly. But you must give it to them in the first place. Let them have it. Why not? I Why love not? that. I love that. This is very this is very dangerous minds, Michelle Pfeiffer. I love this. I'm going to give you all an A. It's up to you to keep it. Uh, yeah. You know, that's another way of giving respect. I, I do like that. Sarah Plumley is our guest. This is flying by this. I can't believe this. 26 minutes to the top of the air. It's Thursday's Richie Allen radio show, live from Salford. Sarah is in South West France, you did say, didn't you? Just about. Just yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Caroline says, uh, Caroline came back on to say, kid gloves, morals should be taught at home and respect to parents' rights have been scared out of them. This thing about homeschooling now, I've interviewed over the years several families who decided to take their children out of schools because they were worried about things. Uh, They were worried about, you talk about indoctrination and why that worried you. And uh, it's on the Odyssey page. I'm I'm, I'm actually going to tweet a link to that um, when I shut up in a minute and let you back in. I'm going to tweet a link out to your Odyssey page. So indoctrination, some very strange things are being I I don't know taught to or spoken about in front of children at schools 100 genders all this stuff Um, I I know Jordan Peterson touches on some of this stuff as well do you have any idea where this comes from who who says right let's let's do this I um, to say I don't would be a lie but that's quite a lot of reading and a lot of research and I'm sure your listeners are, are doing that for themselves there is no way it's an accident let's put it that way uh, and in terms of a teacher on the ground, uh, it, it comes it comes in an email from one of your senior leaders. And, right. oh, we're going to teach this today during tutor time. Um, and you don't know what it is. You receive it if you're lucky a week before, but usually the morning of the lesson. You have an hour with your tutor group and you teach them whatever's in this PowerPoint presentation. Well, I can tell you exactly how many of those I delivered during my teaching years. Absolutely damn well none of them. Good on you. Um, because I don't know what that stuff is and I don't know where it's come from. And I haven't been trained to teach that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'll back my ability. If I need to go and cover an English literature class, no problem. History class, no problem. But I don't know what this stuff is. I don't know what it's about. I don't know who wrote it. And and if you're going to give me an hour's notice, I don't really have time to (laughs) to research and find out about it. No, no, no. I wasn't, uh, as you know, I wasn't (laughs) expecting you to have the apps, you know, the actual name of of, of the man or the woman. But it it, it is increasingly... Uh, concerning and and I I do get emails from parents and I've had an email recently from a parent who said I'm terrified to speak out Richie now this is true I swear on everything I hold sacred I've had an email recently from a person who said don't give uh, away my anything that might identify who I am but my wife and I are very worried about our children being taught about sexual activity they're seven and eight years old the, the children are in primary schools in this country and and do you know what do you know what um because they're talking about everything you know all forms of sexuality sexual acts um you know gender identity all that sort of stuff and the gist of the email was I'm worried that if I say something 
Now, this might sound very extreme, uh, Sarah. Uh, the parent said to me, I'm worried that if I say something, I might eventually lose my child. Because somebody might say, the father is homophobic, which he's not. Uh, he's transphobic, he's this or he's that. And eventually, you might get a knock on the door from social services because somebody might dob you in from the school. Now, that might be an extreme uh, concern, an extreme worry. But that's how parents are feeling about this stuff, you know? It's not extreme at all, Richie, in my experience. Not at all. I don't blame those parents for being afraid to speak out. It's got, it's got to come from teachers. It's got to come from groups of teachers. It's got to come from um, people who don't have kids to lose. It's, you know, there is a lot of pressure. I, I, can, I can see exactly where they're, where they're coming from. Um, I, I find it very suspicious, actually, this whole uh, ick and ism thing. For example, the, the idea of phobia. Now, I don't mean to be funny, but I think phobia means an irrational fear yeah, of something, yeah. does it not? So I, I don't even think transphobia is the correct word. And I'm not having a go at the parents, I'm having a go at the, the lobbyists, the activists who are trans activists. Um, people who are afraid why would you be afraid of a trans person? Yeah, absolutely. I don't even think they're using the right word. It's not like racism where we can all we can all figure out what that is. Transphobia. What? I have an irrational fear of trans people. No, I don't. Uh, you know, again, there's people much much more intelligent than I am who who are very good on this. Uh, Jordan Peterson being one of them. But I I, I understand exactly um, where these parents are coming from, and I, I don't blame them at all. It's very it is very very difficult. Uh, there was a case you, you've probably covered it. The um, chaplain from the Church of England school who got fired because he did a he did his job in, in a CV school yeah. and explained that it was you know it's okay to not necessarily agree with all of these things and you know it's okay to be who you are you don't have to you know if you're a person of faith etc and he got fired for, for, for having a, a different view and the view that he's paid to have actually uh, that's right so- that's right <laughs> he's a Christian it's in the Bible I had a friend in Spain who would always say that it's in the Bible as if as if that you know was was the be all and the end all well, yeah you've got people in in Canada saying that you know preaching the Bible is is hate speech what there's people pre- preaching the Bible leave them alone in fairness they're just preaching the Bible oh, it's I can not, see the Bible that. is not hate speech uh, I'm, I'm you've, 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 you've quite rightly taken over this era of the show it's brilliant I, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna see I'm gonna see what you just said and raise it about the Bible being labeled as hate speech CNN ran a story today some uh, prominent um, African-American woman is just about to release a book that proves, apparently proves now, that the US Constitution and the Second Amendment, which is to do with free speech, if my memory serves me right, you know, the right to free speech, that was specifically put in there to keep down black people. And that's a book that's coming out. Somebody has published that. This this, this sort of madness, you know, I just, I laugh out loud because if you don't laugh out loud, you you end up, I don't know, in a loony bin. Um, So it's it's great. Can I read just a couple more tweets before you come back in? yeah, they're loving you. Uh, no two ways about about it. Lance is a, a, sco- a school governor. How you doing, Lance? I can concur. The sex education for primary school children. I sat in on the parents' briefing. It was mind-bending crazy stuff. I have raised concerns, said Lance, as a parent and as a school governor. I'd imagine you have raised concerns, Lance. Paul says, I have kids at primary school age and their teachers are okay for the most part. Most of this stuff should be taught in the home, in my experience. Kids are relying on tech because parents use it as a pacifier everything is okay in moderation you have to uh, be responsible says Lance that's a very good comment um, parents do some of them use it as a pacifier we've been out and about in beautiful countryside in the Lake District we've been in uh, Tatton Park in, you'll know very well of course uh, Sarah yes. and, and we've seen youngsters walking around reading tablets while 50 feet away from them are grazing deer 
And that's Kafka. Oh. Now that's madness, that, right? So, uh, yeah. Insanity, absolute insanity. Yeah. Um, and look, that's all the sort of stuff we lost with, with lockdowns and all the rest of it. You, when, when you couldn't go and do that stuff, unless you were willing to break various laws, et cetera, et cetera. You know, your, your tablet's going to be in your home. Don't worry about that. They want tablets, TVs and other handheld devices, as many as you can handle in your house. For goodness sake, don't take them out with you as well. Fair play to you. Now, France, a bit mad lockdown. Uh, Caroline's family are from Nancy. Um, some of the villages around Nancy City, it's more a big town than a city, but it has a cathedral. It's beautiful, Nancy. Don't know if you've ever been up there. A lot of people drive through it, but it is lovely. Um, drones last year were deployed to tell people to, to get in, basically. I mean, again, Kafka. You couldn't make this stuff up. Somebody was flying a drone and with an automated voice saying, get in, in French, obviously, get in, get indoors and stay indoors. Um, down about where you are, has it been draconian in how it's been enforced? Absolutely not, no. Um, we, When we were trying to figure out where to live uh, five, six years ago, uh, when we saw the madness coming, I'm not saying we knew specifically what kind of madness, but if you read enough stuff, you can sort of figure out where it's going. And we we drove across this, this just this vast expanse of farming land, and we said to ourselves, well, the Nazis didn't have enough tanks. They may have technically occupied this, but how could, on earth could they enforce anything? Because there is so much land. And, and, and not as many people. So you have a similar population in France as the UK, but we have three times the land space here. So we were looking for somewhere that was out of the way. Um, I think we've seen a police car twice in about 14 months. Brilliant. Um, here. And it was a very, it was a deliberate decision. And the locals, you know, we... They're not paying any attention to this nonsense, basically. The only thing that's frustrating is the face nappies. There is a quite strong adherence to that, even outdoors here. Um, we've had none of it. We refuse to do that. It's... Um, it's not what they're saying it is. I know because I've read the damn studies. I read uh, stuff on the CDC website. Um, you know, why aren't parents, teachers, I'm, I'm sure some parents are, but why aren't parents, teachers and governors and head teachers reading these things? They're freely available on the internet. It says that <laughs> it, masks do not do not work. They are not effective um, for, for stopping or slowing the spread of infectious diseases. Uh, disposable medical masks, also also known as surgical masks, are loose-fitting devices that were designed to be worn by medical personnel to protect accidental contamination of patient wounds and to protect the wearer against splashes or sprays of bodily fluids. There is limited evidence for their effectiveness in preventing yeah. influenza virus tr transmission, either when worn by the infected person for source control or when worn by uninfected persons to reduce exposure. This is a meta-study covering nine, all the studies that are relevant to um, non-pharmaceutical, like ordinary people wearing masks from 1946 to 2018. It was published on the 5th of May 2020 on the CDC Centre for Disease Control website. We've, th that's a year old. What are we doing? And yeah. what are we doing putting them on children? Oh, this is this is a dreadful thing, dreadful thing. And again, this is a big problem for many parents around the country. The government did... We don't like giving the government credit, but it did make it fairly clear that it was uh, not mandatory. But yet schools, but schools took a very, very austere approach to it. And even though they were told not to force children to do it, they attempted to coerce children by making them sit somewhere else in the canteen and by, you know, basically leaning on them. That was going on here. Dreadful. And Can also you, peer pressure. Like, peer come on, pressure. we've all been teenagers. You know how hard yeah. it is to go against the grain as a teenager, to yeah. not have the right trainers or, or the, you know, the right school bag or whatever. This is, it's, it's monstrous. It's funny, it's funny how, you know, schools have been really strict on that, but not on, on lateness and manners yeah. <laughs> and the actual important things in life, isn't it? Also, I want, I want to ask a question. What happens to those fibres? What happens to those fibres? that you're breathing into your lungs. 
where do, you, do they go? Well, the, again, the annoying thing <laughs> is three, no, uh, three that I know, know of, but two I can prove. Two peer-reviewed studies, two, one of them from Germany, uh, published weeks ago, not too long ago, weeks ago. The only newspaper to cover the study was The Telegraph. In, on its website, by the way, it didn't make it into the print edition. Uh, German uh, things, uh, study said, yes, many of these masks have toxic chemicals in them, uh, the fibres, as you said, and could, be, you know, could, could make somebody very, very ill. Not a whisper outside of the Telegraph, not a whisper. This outrageous. Is a yeah. friend of mine works in, or did work in respiratory at the Royal Free in London, and she's told me straight away, just not a chance. Uh, I happen to be asthmatic. I'm quite open about that. Um, had a, a, quite a decent sports career for a, an asthmatic ant. But um, yeah. I, I, you, don't, you don't need a head full of brains to figure out if you cover your mouth and nose, you know, oxygen intake, i.e. breathing, is going to be a bit more tricky, do you? No. I mean, just think, just imagine the situation. You're on a plane. The shout goes up. Is, is, anyone, is there a doctor on board? What is the first thing a doctor does when, when they see somebody? They, they remove anything. Remove. That is blocking the yeah, airways. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter what complaint the person has. They make sure nothing is blocking the airways because the first thing is to make sure the damn patient's breathing, right? It's not rocket it's science, not rocket is it? Science. I wouldn't argue with you, Sarah. Seven years, seven years refereeing men's soccer in, in Stockport. I mean, there's a, there must be a book in you. If there's not, there's something very wrong. You know, there must be a book in you. Uh, Elizabeth says, fellow listeners, don't you love how quickly and articulately uh, this teacher speaks? That's lovely. Uh, Gaddafi is in Scotland. Uh, well, yeah, these names on Twitter, they do me brains in, but you have to, I have to be patient. Um, oh, there was another one from Lara. Let me find that one. Now, Lara is in France. Oh, what happened there? Yes, Lara, uh, we live in south-west France, Richie. Children are taught cursive at a young age. My children don't have laptops or didn't have laptops in class. The phones are banned. My son is doing his BAC. He has to write pretty much everything. Strict teaching, says Lara. Bit archaic at times, though. Not much thinking outside of the box, she says. That's a balanced comment there. So on the one hand, it's lovely. They, they write things. The phones are banned. But that might lean towards not allowing the child to be creative. Now, I probably should have asked you that already anyway. Is there a balance there to be found, you know? Of, of course, but you have to get the basics right first. If there are no foundations, what the hell are we going to build on? Um, I, I like uh, what, what your listeners written in there because she's perfectly correct about uh, banning the phones, completely agree with that, the cursive, the strictness, the discipline. There's plenty of time for being uh, truly creative at weekends and at ho um, home time. But you, you need the school to get at least get the foundations built. We used to say, I'm obviously I'm a secondary school teacher, I have done some work in primary schools, but we used to say, please, please just deliver me a student in year seven, an 11-year-old, who can add, subtract, multiply and divide by hand and that knows their times tables up to 12 times 12. That is all I ask. I don't care if they never learn about fractions with you. I don't care if primary doesn't teach them about percentages yet. Please nail the basics. I will do the rest. As a secondary school teacher, if, if, you've, if, I, if a student comes to me, multiplication tables, um, add, subtract, multiply, divide in columns, and, and obviously a reasonable reading level because they do need to be able to read the questions. We're away. I can I can get the best grade possible for you at GCSE maths. That's all we need. That's all we need you to do. But of course, no, no, the curriculum's sprawling. These poor primary school teachers who are usually not a lot. Many of them will not be mathematics specialists anyway. They're trying to teach all of this stuff. And of course, if maths isn't your specialist subject, you're probably quite nervous about it as a as a primary school teacher, particularly yeah. when you start out, understandably so. 
And I just, it's such a mess and it's so e- it would be so easy to fix. And the question is, why is it not why being fixed? Why is it not being fixed? That's a $64 million question. There are many answers <laughs> to that, maybe. Uh, Alan, said, Alan in Liverpool came back on to say, I love this. I feel like I'm in class, too scared to nod off. Hope she doesn't see me tweeting this. You've been, you've been rumbled, son. And a different Caroline, Caroline Beattie, came on to say, uh, your guest teacher is amazing, intelligent and spot on. Uh, Gaddafi is Scottish but living in the Netherlands well, what, what's it like in the, the Netherlands as, as far as you can ascertain let us know on Twitter it's at BBG Richie um, glass half full or half empty could this be reversed this lunacy it has to be it has to be doesn't it Otherwise, what are we doing yeah. it for? What are we doing for our children? What is the point? Of course, I mean, so many, many years ago, I had a fantastic form tutor. Uh, he never actually taught me for a, an academic subject, but I probably learned more from him uh, out, you know, during tutor time and outside of the classroom, sports and interform than anything else. And when I interviewed him um, in, in uh, when I was a, a trainee teacher, I went back as, uh, to the same school to do some uh, t- assistant teaching and stuff like that. And I, I did some interviews with uh, with teachers and he was one of them. And I said, what do you think? Where's it, where's it all going? Because obviously I'd seen a decline for when I was at school, if nothing else in terms of behaviour, but certainly academic standards as well. And I said to him, what, what do you do? And he says, honestly, you get a blank sheet of paper and you start all over again. Bin right. it start again and he was a wonderful teacher physics teacher uh, a truly fantastic man he he turned around a very very poorly behaved form um and made made us the best form in the school we won everything despite being the most hated form and the worst form in first year (laughs) by the by the time we by the time he'd finished with us and what did he do he 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 behaved like a drill sergeant for the first six weeks that he that he took over us in year eight he was going ape about people not doing their top buttons up ties being wonky stand straight do this it was he was a monster for the first six six weeks or so uh but it sorted out it sorted out our really badly behaved class and was he kind then sarah was he kind then was he relatable Probably so, um, but right. you can You have to have the reins tight to begin with, don't you? Before yeah. you can start letting them out. He now he still has uh, members of that first cl- uh, first tutor group still visiting him in, uh. in their twenties, in their thirties. And do you know what he did to me? I walked back one time. I was I think I was probably about twenty five. I'd just come in to talk to him about uh, football or something. The, the refereeing I was doing, and I walked in and he went gum in the bin, and I pulled the gum did out he? of my mouth, and threw it in the bin before I even thought about before it. Before you realised it, and then he laughed at me. He said, "Goodness me, it's, it still works." Brilliant. Now, a couple of quick questions. If I didn't ask this, I'd be shot. I don't like to get personal with people. Um, are you a mum? I'm not. No. Um, I know that I'm. I'm here to to teach children and lots of them, and they're kind of all my kids. I used to say. I used to say to my my bosses. How do you have enough energy? Like yeah. I used to exhaust myself when I was teaching <laughs> in classrooms. I used to use all of my patience up. So on a Friday night, I'd go home and, you know, g- give give the husband what for. And uh, I thought, my goodness, can I, can you imagine how you deal with your own kids? How interesting now. How interesting exhausted, that is. Yeah. Exhausted your emotions and exhausted yourself. And you would just treat, I think I would just treat my own children too badly and not have enough time for them. I'm, I, if I, this is a bit controversial, I suppose, these days, but if I was going to do it, I'd be a stay-at-home mum. I, I wouldn't, I would not try and balance the career and the kids because you only get one shot with those kids and you've got to get it right. That's so, amazing, isn't it? That? Yeah, I, I chose I, the career. That's, that's a conversation again for another day. I've had this conversation. and um, It's the only time I've ever been screamed at for being misogynistic. <laughs> I talked about, you know, not because I'm, I'm not remotely old-fashioned, but the idea that when a baby is born, 
mum should be around for quite a lot of the time early on. Uh, that's not saying that women should stay in the kitchen. It's not, but you can't say anything these days without people, you know, jumping right into the black and whites. Nothing is shades of grey anymore, sadly. But that, that's another... I want to ask you a football question before we run out of time. With your seven years refereeing experience, and I'm going to sound like a virtue signaller, no matter how I say this, <laughs> but I really do mean this. Uh, the best assistant referee in the world is Sean Massey Lloyd. In the world, I mean, I'm a proper footy. I never miss uh, a life uh, in the world. So, th- so the question is: Is there a natural progression? Why is Chan not taking charge of games? How does it work? Well- I'll, first of all, I'll just say that I know Sean. Do um, you? Wow. Yeah, I've been her assistant referee on a number of major games, including the Women's Have Cup you? final. Jesus, you uh, never yes. know who you're talking yeah, to, do yeah, you? Yeah. Fantastic. Um, she's a fantastic assistant referee and a fantastic referee. Uh, she works very hard. She's extremely fit. Yeah, she's brilliant, Jane. And um, I, I don't have contact with her at this time, but what, what I will say is I, I do know that she was getting some trouble from uh, the footballing powers. They were wanting her to cut her hair and stuff. And no she said, way. No, off. Oh yeah, uh, I know that they they said to her things like, um, "Oh, that was it." They 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 trimmed off um, a tenth of a second of the sprint times so that uh, to to try and sort of the the, the official theory was that um, oh we're going to make our uh, assistant referees even faster sprinters than the FIFA assistant referees. So that means that the Premier League assistant referee fitness test would be more stringent in terms of the sprinting section of the test than the, the FIFA, the, the, the international one. And actually, it was speculated in in uh, the circles at the, at the top of us female referees that, that worked in the men's game. We it could talk for hours about this, Sarah. So what you're, te- <laughs> what you're telling me is then that there is a suspicion that, the, that the, the old farts in the suits don't want women to progress like Sean... Massey, they or maybe not. Do not. She is amazing to still oh, she's be brilliant, there really. and do. She, she's the stuff that she's put up with. I, it's not my story to tell, so I won't. And I, I haven't spent, you know, yeah, yeah, many, you, many moons with her. But I have done enough games with her, enough uh, uh, matches to, you know, I, we've shared enough experiences. And uh, one time, uh, I was sort of in that top group of, of female officials, not at her level. I was, I was coming. Well, you through. obviously were. You did the cup final. You were assistant referee the cup final. That's, that's oh, an the, incredible yeah, achievement. Yeah. That was the women's. Well, it doesn't matter. Women's, women's sure. game is improved proved unbelievably in the last 10, all, all of 15 those, years. All of yeah. us women refs were very proud of our service in the men's game, even though it was Fantastic. at lower levels than that, because it, it makes you better. It, it makes you better for the women's game as yeah. well. If you see what I mean? We were kind of, all of us, even though we tended to operate at lower levels, not Sean, of course, she went all, you know, she all went, the way to the Premier League. But do you know why I love is, her? Do you know why I love, the, 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 not only because she's absolutely brilliant and is, has almost got a sixth sense, like, is, is so, so rarely, if ever wrong, on the really tight calls. Correct. But I loved, yep. I loved the way she handled um, uh, Keezy and, and, and Andy Gray years ago. I loved the way amazing. she, de- I lo- loved it. She never took offence to it. She spoke to the guys on the phone. She said, hey, look, you know, I'm a big girl. I, I know you're just being stupid. It's no big deal and all of that. And I thought, <laughs> how classy, you know, what a classy she was, person. She was totally cla- I, I was, yeah. I was sort of operating at that time. And with her, she was telling us that the press were camped in her front on her front lawn for the whole of the rest of the week after that incident. Um, after that tight call, I think it was the Liverpool match, the one where that you know that sort yeah, of got yeah, rid of yeah. uh, Gray and Keys, and she, the stuff she was telling us. They were have to the 
the, the I think it was the Premier League were having to get a car to drive her to school because bless her, she's a PE teacher. Or she yeah. was uh, as, as well as a as a, an assistant referee on the Premier League. So she it was a crazy crazy time for her. And she carried herself beautifully. Uh, she really did. And again, it's those life lessons, isn't it? You know, she, yeah. she taught me lots of things. The way she handled these ridiculous situations in her life, and you you take all of that with you. Sarah Plumley is on Twitter. It's Sarah Plumley UK, all one word. Follow her. Um, listen, if you've listened to me before, you know I I, I wouldn't molly coddle or patronise. That's been outstanding to listen to for the last hour. Come back again and soon. I'll hound you to come back on and we'll pick up these subjects and other subjects as well. I've loved having you on, Sarah. I really have. Thanks so much for coming on today. My absolute pleasure. Cheers for having me, Richie. Anytime. We'll definitely be inviting Sarah back on again. Fantastic. It's at Sarah Plumley UK on Twitter. Give her a follow there. Professional teacher. Uh, got out of state school teaching. Didn't like the indoctrination aspect of it. Didn't like the way it was going. Is in the southwest of France now. Uh, she's been an actor, an actress. She's uh, travelled everywhere. Uh, refereeing at a very high level in the women's game. Refereed men. Great, great, great guest. Loved having her on. And I'll be inviting her back on right soon. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Uh, thanks to Sarah again, and of course to Dr. Richard M. Fleming. Uh, he was uh, excellent in R12. I'm going to go and put my teeth back in. I've not been able to speak today for some reason, and uh, I'm going to chill out for a bit. I'll speak to you again on Sir, uh, so, you see, Sunday morning at 10 o'clock UK time for Sunday Morning Melodies, a totally different programme. And you can only hear that on richieallen.co.uk. Thanks again, Richard Fleming and Sarah Plumley. You look after yourselves. Have a fantastic weekend. Going out with something a bit French. Played it on Sunday morning melodies before. It's Renault closing out the program. Bye for me. Bye now.